0: Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm a Spiritual Engagement Coordinator for the Spiritual Formation Office of Indiana Wesleyan University. And my guest this week is Jason Vickers. Jason is a well-trained theologian and widely published. You can find all kinds of books uh written and edited by him on Amazon. And he is a professor of theology at Asbury Seminary and a dear old friend of mine. And I'm happy to have him on the show again. I've He's been on once before, and I was really excited to get him on again when we get to the book of Hebrews because he is a lover of the book of Hebrews and especially insightful about concepts of atonement and sacrifice and holiness and all these themes that are really big in the book of Hebrews. So I think he was a good fit for this text this week, which is Hebrews 7 verses 23 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 through 28. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Jason. Jason, would you be willing to read the passage for us just to get us started?
1: Absolutely. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.
0: The word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Let us pray. Father,
0: we give you thanks for your law and for the word of the oath and for your son who became a priest for us. And so I dare to ask now that your word would be stirring among us, not heard as mere letters and sounds, but coming with the power of your Holy Spirit. So we dare to ask that Jason and I both would be nudged and guided and even authorized by your Spirit to explore the words of this ancient text that we may bear witness to the ancient truth. And we dare to ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whose blood we approach your throne boldly, begging for grace. In his name we pray. Amen. So, Jason, uh, what do you notice here? What's uh, interesting to you in this passage? What catches your eye first today?
1: Well, I would be remiss if I didn't say that for a very specific reason, this is one of my my favorite little texts in the New Testament, and that is the verse 25, I suppose if you, if you like to break them up, it would be kind of B, you know, the second half of the verse, since he always lives to make intercession for them, the reason this this passage is near and dear to my heart is that it always reminds me of "Arise, my soul, arise!" Right, the 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 Charles Wesley hymn, which is my favorite Charles Wesley hymn, with with all due respect to Anne, can it be right? It's it is by far my favorite Wesley hymn. You know, he ever lives above for me to intercede. Right. It's the second verse of the, of the hymn. And, you know, I love this sort of image that Christ is actively interceding for us. And of course, it's, it's anchored here in this text uh, biblically. You know, and of course, in the Wesley hymn, the very next verse, it, it's five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. It's a very striking image of the wounds, the five bleeding, present tense, wounds pleading for us. Uh, so, the, the the it's almost as though the wounds of Christ uh, even now have agency, which is just a, a, such a, a striking and powerful, and you can now uh, maybe see why I'm so enamored with this Wesley hymn. But so, that part of this passage always jumps out at me, but it kind of because of, of that Wesley hymn, right?
0: Oh, that's lovely. No, well, there's always the way in, you know, I like to joke sometimes that the difference between a professional Bible scholar and the rest of us is the rest of us admit it when we say where our ideas come from when they're outside of the Bible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so thank you for naming that influence. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that hymn very well. I'm not sure it's sung as often as it maybe should be, right?
1: Oh, um, it's, it's fabulous! It's so. Uh, I tell students at Asbury, you know that 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 it's christologically just far richer than "And Can It Be." Uh, so <laughs> I, I tell them that
0: to try to get them to actually go look at the hymn, right? "And Can It Be" tends to focus on another theme in this passage, which is the kind of once for all mm-hmm. character. Yes. It's perfect and done, or there's kind of two, there's two senses of perfect. Of course, perfect is a, is a term of grammar. First, it's something that has happened, mm. but it's continuing, continuing to be in effect. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the word perfect can have that meaning too. Right. Uh, and so this once for all has, has kind of two senses. It's one time for all people and, Again, and can be kind of brings that out? Yep. But one for all time comes out in this notion of a permanent priest, always living, present tense, making intercession. Yeah. And that's highlighted in that, in the other hymn. What, what's the name of the hymn again? Arise, arise my, my soul, soul, arise. Yeah. Arise, my soul, arise.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a great hymn. It was left out of the most recent United Methodist hymnal, uh, which which is just um, unthinkable in my mind. So that when the um, when we put together the new Asbury hymnal for Estes Chapel at the seminary, there was a, an email that went out that that said, you know, uh, if you could advocate for a song to be included in this new hymnal, which is now in our chapel. It's called the Asbury hymnal. Uh, you know, what What would you advocate for or what, what would you want to see? So I emailed back and said that if it didn't have Arise My Soul Arise, I wouldn't use it. Uh, just that simple. So now, unfortunately, they had the good sense to include it. So it's it's in the, the new Asbury hymnal.
0: <laughs> well played. That's good. <laughs> so what what is the significance then yeah. for us? inspired by that hymn, inspired by this text. What's the significance of this ongoing, perpetual, present tense intercession? I've heard more growing up, the significance of the once for all, past tense Mm -hmm. sacrifice of Jesus, that it kind of gives us a certain kind of security. It's we're not wondering. There's something, uh, there's a weird kind of, yeah. solidity to the past, right? It's right. done. It's, it's there.
1: It's, it is, it's final. It is, it is finished, right? It's right, it is finished, finished. finished.
0: So walk me through the the significance of this perpetual, permanent, ongoing intercession.
1: That's great. I mean, let, look, I think that we are in this passage. This is going to be a, a, a key text for some deep differences, I think, between Protestants and Catholics. And for Protestants, especially on the Protestant side, I think this is a, a text that you know can be both a sort of a anchor point for, for things we might want to say about this, about, about Christ's sacrifice on the cross, about priesthood, ordination, even by extension, the Eucharist, but maybe also a problem for us, too. I think this text can cut both ways. It could be read in a kind of Protestant way, and I think it can be read in a Catholic way. Now, the different, some of the differences, just quickly, that I, I think surface. Take, for example, you mentioned growing up. You know, growing up in a in a Protestant environment, I always heard, you know, that we don't believe in crucifixes, right? We don't we don't have crucifixes, and I would even hear, you know, I've I've heard preachers. Uh, preaching against Catholicism specifically, and the fact that they that Christ is still hanging on the cross in Catholic churches, and that we don't believe He's there anymore. Right, He's no longer on the cross. It's finished. Right, it's once and for all. Um, and so, by contrast, uh, and and I think what that in some ways. Um, well, we'll get to some other issues in a moment. Uh, by contrast, I think you you have this sense of the ongoingness of Christ's wounds, the sacred wound tradition uh, that shows up, particularly in medieval theology, in medieval sacramental practice. You get in medieval art, uh, sacred art, so that the ascended Lord is often depicted as, as, you know, having these, the the robe will be pulled back so that you can see the wounds still fresh, still bleeding. Or you can imagine, you know, one of my favorite um, sacred images is an altarpiece, Jan van Eyck's Mystic Lamb of God, where you have the lamb in the New Jerusalem. The city is sort of in the background. The lamb is on the altar, front and center, people streaming from four directions to the Lamb, uh, and there's blood flowing out of the, the heart of the Lamb you know, into a, a chalice, into a cup. Um, so I, I'm sort of bringing these images up, and, and we can tease out, I suppose, the, the significance. Um, I mean, maybe minimally coming at this a little more from, from the Catholic side of things, perhaps it is that um the the nature and character of God that that leads uh, God to become incarnate, uh, to suffer and die in the first place, is unchanging. Uh, and and it maybe has to do with, so that uh, with with this kind of ongoing movement toward us uh, on the part of Christ, that uh, uh, suffering love, if you will, um, that is always moving toward us in intercession, in prayer. Um, I, I, I will say, interestingly, that uh, there are some marvelous uh, texts in early holiness and Pentecostal sources that... Talk about the Eucharist in in just these ways. They, they they talk about the freshness of the blood, the fact that you, it's flowing even now, and and these are in some early Holiness and Pentecostal sermons. Chris Green is the one that unearthed all of that in his uh, Pentecostal theology of the Lord's Supper. And I mean, you can go there in that book, and he'll you can find you know all kinds of fascinating quotations along just those lines. So it's not that. Uh, we're incapable of thinking that way, but um, I, I certainly think there's there's a difference here, and I can't help but think that the emphasis on the once for all nature of the sacrifice, that it is finished, you know, Jesus is no longer on the cross, perhaps ties into more memorialist understandings of the Eucharist on our part uh, so I think there, there's that. then of course as you push on in this uh, passage as you it, the other kind of Protestant Catholic uh, rival readings perhaps, I think in a lot of Protestantism, you know for us this text is is maybe an argument against uh, the priesthood, against too much emphasis on priests or if you like, maybe an argument for the priesthood of all believers so to speak but but through Christ the one true priest and here you know there is this kind of depiction of the Christ's perfection all right his blamelessness his holiness versus you you could read this you know earthly priests who are less than perfect, who are weak, who are not, you know, and so you can see how that plays into our antipathy or opposition to priesthood. So I I think there's a whole lot going on here in Christology with respect to how we think about the risen and ascended Lord. Are his wounds uh, healed, scarred over? Does the blood continue to flow? And if so, uh, what does that mean or what is the significance of that? And for me, maybe I, I want to play around with the idea that it, it perhaps signifies that what God does on the cross is not some kind of one-time act on God's part that that isn't a matter of God's nature and disposition toward us always. Uh, so I want to kind of frame it in that sense. And then again, you've got so much here in the way of uh, you could read this text and say, we don't need priests. Uh, we just go to Jesus ourselves. So those those are some of my kind of big thoughts right here at the outset. I love it. I feel like
0: you've just kind of laid out all the crucial interpretive fault lines. And I feel like you've highlighted really well how our different traditions and this happens with the book of hebrews a lot i'll say a little bit more about that maybe after the break but this is like a great this is packed with both proof texts and with like anomalies that undermine the position both and right next to each other so it seems like the argument here is both evidence and counter evidence for the way that we've constructed things so um thanks for laying out all those fault lines let's take a quick break and come back and explore that some more And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Jason Vickers, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Um, I'll just read the text again so it's in front of us. So the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save at all times those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hmm. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: So I want to, man, just after hearing those different sort of positions and, you know, benefits and and costs of each, you can just see how this text is running in both directions. Once those later, historically later questions are pressed to it, there's a strong case of he already did this, right? (laughs) And it says he doesn't. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices daily, but on the flip side, uh, at all times and living to make intercession, permanent priesthood, all the first half of it is highlighting that ongoingness. And I feel like that word perfect, I know I already mentioned this, but that word perfect that appears, it's the last word in the text, which comes from this word teleo, to make perfect, to make complete. That's the word you kept saying finished. That's the word in John 19, right? Where it says it is finished. It's could be translated. It is complete or it is perfected. And the language of perfection always implies, doesn't mean end and now you put it on the shelf. A perfect means now it's complete and able to continue to be used, you know? So I have been and am continuing to be this perfect priest who intercedes. So you definitely have both a, once for all and a at all times kind of working both times and some translations cheat and turn at all times in 25 to to the uttermost verse 25 where it says uh ponteles, mm-hmm. um he is able you know ice toe ponteles verse 25 unto the
1: mm-hmm. always you know <laughs> so so let me ask you on this perfection idea and you've got your- Greek there in front of you. Um, the very last verse of the passage uh, twenty-eight is is intriguing to me. I, I've got I actually have the NRSV open and I, and believe it or not I've got the King James open and they, they they really have a very different feel to the very end of the passage in the NRSV it reads appoints a son who has been made perfect forever okay. The King James, to me, comes across very different. Maketh the Son, the the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. So, is consecrated forevermore versus who has been made perfect forever. I think those are just interesting differences in in translation. And I, I worry a little bit with the NRSV rendering that it could be taken to imply, you know, who has been made perfect forever, that there was a time when the sun was not perfect, right? Is consecrated forevermore uh, is slightly different language that, that, that for me, conceptually, it's one thing to be consecrated for something right set aside for it perhaps and for the sun to be consecrated forevermore but made perfect do you see where i'm i'm kind of hung up a little there in the nrsv's rendering of the text it 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 sort of makes me yeah it's I, i'm trying to check
0: to see if it's a textual issue or a translation thing yeah it's definitely made perfect and you would have to change the book of Hebrews 22 ish times to correspond to the worry. And it is a constant worry. This is another one of those places where the book of Hebrews just doesn't fit the paradigms. Right. So over and over and over and over again, perfection is an event that occurs to the sun. There's no question. Mm -hmm. So in the ancient church, you know, uh, this was sorted out by attributing it to his humanity, right? Right. Yep. Um, so his humanity was uh, innocent, but its perfection was worked out in time. So the the divine nature is perfect, but the human nature is perfected. Uh, in the Reformation, and sometimes I should say in a in certain Augustinian strains, put in the forefront in the Reformation this is moved over from his person to his work. Right. So, Oh, well, when it says he's perfected, it means his work was perfected. It was finished. It was completed. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and that, so consecration. Yeah, and you can feel that worry in that translational choice. There consecration in, in,
1: language might kind of yeah. move in
0: that direction. Right. That's right. To make it safer. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, that's just not a, it's just not an, a fair translation of the word. I mean, you just, that's not what the word means. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and he, you know, it said he's made perfect by obedience earlier in the book of Hebrews. Yeah. And so, Hebrews really emphasizes the perfect, the per- being perfected of the Son, how that jives with his uh, pre existent. Uh, but part of it is when we hear perfection, you know, we, I mean, I don't know, man. I, I've heard people talk about like Adam and Eve being created perfect and then falling which then of course sets up salvation as getting back to the garden. But I just, I just think that's completely wrongheaded. Sure. They were innocent, but they weren't perfect. They weren't mature. They weren't complete. They hadn't achieved the end. They were at the beginning. So I think perfection implies a kind of a completion of a story of a narrative of a goal. Right. And, um, Or,
1: or perhaps in the context of this passage you could say the making perfect has to do with his priesthood, you know, specifically that through the sacrifice on the cross, he becomes the the perfect priest who offers the perfect sacrifice.
0: That's right. So the big game that's being played in the book of Hebrews is his identity as priest and his identity as son, mm-hmm. right? Son goes with kingship. So yeah. it's the two aspects of the threefold office, right? Mm-hmm priest and king playing off each other and you know his sonship i mean it's not that his sonship is achieved through his priesthood exactly but that's how it's exercised right Mm -hmm. and so yeah he's perfected as priest and that's a nice when you say that jason that's a nice kind of combination of a more patristic and a more reformational way of taking it because it's neither his nature as a human in the abstract that's being perfected Mm -hmm nor is it his work in the abstract that's being perfected. Mm -hmm. It's his person to use those terms. It's his person with regard to his work that's being perfected, right? It's, it's all one thing. Sorry, that's a little technical, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the son is perfected as priest. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So, no, I I think that's right. And then that perfection, then he continues to be, and then the temptation that you're trying to push against sometimes for us as Protestants is to think that his priestly office is only in the past, mm-hmm. in his death, mm-hmm. and then his royal office is what's operative now, mm-hmm. as he sits at the right hand of the Father yes. running things, right? Yes. Um, uh, Calvin, in it, when he talks about the threefold office, he actually talks about prophet, priest, and king in that order. He emphasizes prophet as kind of his teaching office which is done. There's no more prophets Mm -hmm. now. And then his priestly office being fully achieved in his death. And then he's raised and his, his Royal office is kind of completed in his resurrection and continues now. And that's the longest section in Calvin's treatment of the threefold office. You'd expect it to be priest. You're thinking, Oh, Calvin, he's, he's a reformer. He's going to talk about the death of Jesus, but he only talks for a couple of pages. Like, yeah, he died for us. He, and then, I mean, he comes back to it in the fourth book when he attacks the Catholics for having a wrong view of the priest, right? But uh, like you mentioned earlier. But then he just goes off on the royal office of Christ for like 20 pages, all about him overseeing us now, providing for us now, praying for us now. But it's like the intercession of Christ can sometimes get moved over into just his royal office. He's just He's now just the son. He was priest for a while. He's done. He clocks out of that. And now he's just son, right? Right. Yep. And I think that's a. I think that way often when I think of his intercession, I think of oh, it's it's King Junior asking King Gene uh, Senior for you know for for help, right? It's all about providence and not linked to this notion of this ongoing application, if that's the right verb. Maybe there's a better verb. Mm-hmm. This ongoing, the intercession of his blood. Mm-hmm. Right? But I think that is exactly the way that the book of Hebrews thinks about it. I mean, you, if you go to I – mean, there's so many places in, he, I think, of Hebrews 10, another in 12, where he talks about we have access to the Father through his blood right. and through his flesh. So his intercession is linked with this priestly language. Mm-hmm. So I think you're on to something there that this the perfection is not then in the past. It's an ongoing Perpetual perfection would be the phrase that I would want to use. If I know that's a mouthful, but oh.
1: the perpetual perfection of his priesthood, and I and I think we have to pay attention there and be careful. You know, when when you're talking about, uh, we'll call it priestly religion or the priesthood or the work of priests. You know, you're you're in the the world of of holiness, frankly. So the priests say, in the Old Testament, they serve in the holy place. And and ultimately, their role is to mediate holiness uh, for Israel. And you've got within that place, you've got all kinds of of holiness is attributed to a variety of things. Uh, The garments, for example, I mean, just think like you're going to almost get back into Leviticus a little bit, right? The altar itself, Uh, So, you've got sacred or holy space, and you've got the mediation of holiness through sacred ritual, and and all of that we can see now in a kind of a Christian version of it in Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, and perhaps even Anglicanism. So, one of the things I I wonder about a little bit with this text is, is, where is, when, when you res- if you read the text in a way that restricts the priesthood to Christ and with restrict that restriction restricts holiness to Christ uh, and Christ, you know seated in the heavens. and you read it in a way that sort of read that, that, that goes against any kind of earthly priests. I wonder if it's possible that that we run the risk of banishing holiness from the earth. You know, we we end up. It's, so it's not just that the priests, the earthly priests, many in number, are weak in 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 this way of reading this. But the question becomes, you know, how, if at all, is holiness mediated to us, or is holiness does it does it end up being strictly? Uh, if an attribute or a property equality a of the Sun and so I, th- these are things I worry about with a con with a certain kind of Protestant reading of, of this text that's so good that's so good let's
0: let's pause there and come back to that uh, after a break so let's take a quick break kind of explore that holiness theme and connect that up to maybe some sermon starter ideas that we can explore in that third section sound good yep. And we're back. Welcome back to fresh text. I'm here with uh, Jason Vickers and we're looking at Hebrews chapter seven verses 23 through 28. So right before the break, Mm -hmm. you mentioned a little bit about holiness, God's holiness, the holiness of Christ, the holiness of his people, the holiness of objects and things and places. And so verse 26, maybe I'll just read 26 and whether maybe this is our sermon starter, or maybe it's just one more little interpretive topic, or maybe a bit of both. Uh, Let's, let's zoom in. I think there's five characteristics here of the high priest that Jesus is. Let me just read 26 as a jumping off point for our last segment for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So there we have it five things Jesus is.
1: that's a great last phrase by the way because it, the, the temptation here is to think of Jesus as being in heaven here right He's exalted above <laughs> the heavens right uh, the, the, So I'm in, just quickly this is as fast aside but you know we believe in God the Father maker of heaven and earth all things visible and invisible that the heavens themselves are part of creaturely reality that they're, they're, they're created. And here the sun as high priest is exalted above the heavens. So I just think it's sort of, which just begs an interesting kind of place. You know, I love to ask place questions, you know, kind of a, so where, where is that exactly?
0: (laughs) I love it. That's great. Well, let's work it backwards then, right? So, if we want to talk about exalted, exalted over the heavens, might be a, an alternative translation. Yep. Okay, that's not yet true of us, right? Although, is it? Ephesians, right? We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but anyway, not yet true of us in a visible, manifested way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then this next one, separated from sinners. I mean, in a strict sense, that's not true because he's, you know, if it's connected to his exaltation, right, Mm -hmm. Um, he's no longer with sinners, though he used to be. Mm -hmm. And we, too, his people are still with sinners in some sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And then unstained, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that mean… I guess for us, if we have stains, do they get washed off completely? No longer stained, or are we unstained in any way? Mm -hmm. Innocent, boy, that's a tough one to attribute. And then this first word, holy, although it's a different word for holy. It's osios, not agios. And yet throughout the book of Hebrews, we're consistently called to holiness. To have an – I mean he uses unstained in another place to refer to our hearts being unstained – he talks about having a clean conscience. He talks about our coming exaltation. Uh, so it's very interesting that you have this, on the one hand, this, this attribution to Jesus as holy in a utterly unique way. Mm-hmm. And yet the whole book again and again, keeps calling us to receive that, live into that, uh, live according to that. Right. So
1: without priests or without priestly rituals, you know, those kinds of things, the things we might associate with more kind of Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, you know, forms of worship, for example. Without all of that, how are these things, these qualities mediated to us, or are they? And here I I sometimes am, am tempted to think that, you know, what happens is, Uh, We end up with a kind of uh, prophetic, as in the, the prophetic text of the Old Testament. And I'm thinking now here, John, of the Wesleyan holiness tradition in particular, that if these qualities are to be mediated to people, right, at all, it's through the preached word. Uh, and, and that's not then a quality per se of the preacher, but, but the preacher is just the, the vehicle, the vessel through which, um, the word comes and, and then these things are mediated to the people of God, um, by way of faith and obedience, right? Believing the
0: word yes, and living in accordance like in Amos. It's like, I, I, I hate all your, I hate all your sacrifices, uh, do justice in the gate. And then, I'll, and then, I'll, then I'll like your sacrifices. So, some of the, some of the prophets like say, well, then they're okay. Right. Yeah. Um, or like the Psalm, uh, Psalm 51 and some others where it says, you don't want a sacrifice. You just want my contrite heart, you know? And, and then there's these little lines, then you'll, you, then you'll accept my sacrifice. And some scholars are like, we wonder if those lines were added a little later <laughs> to kind of like, be like, well, you know, get your heart right, but then the priestly stuff's okay. But, uh, Yeah. And of course, Jesus himself is in his teaching in his own prophetic office is much more aligned with that prophetic tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, the clearing of the temple, the emphasis on your faith has saved you and these kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And also obedience in the way you treat others. Right. So you'll you have your long tassels and your fancy gifts, but you're stealing from widows. Right. Right. His critique of the of both the um, Sadducees and Pharisees is contingent on a kind of an injustice, uh, an injustice among people mm-hmm. that renders one's uh, ritual holiness yeah. moot, right? And this um, not utterly invalid. He says that he has zeal for for the house, right? So it's not that Jesus doesn't care about ritual holiness; it's that it's rendered. I, I'd like to say it's rendered moot or empty and invalid, and even and even contrary it, it because it's a cover. It's a cover story. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our injustice towards one another, so it's interesting how this passage, playing with this Levitical stuff, kind of assuming the prophetic critique, but not, but, but not really leaning on it here in the Book of Hebrews.
1: Yeah, it's this, you know, and in and in Pentecostal expressions of Christianity, I mean, where you can end up is these interesting kind of word of faith. You know, forms of, of Christianity where there's po- The idea is that that there's an emphasis on power that that happens through a spoken, uttered word uh, that comes, um, and and it and there's no controlling of it, and it's given by the Spirit, and it, you know, is and then it. I, I might speak it to you, and then it somehow has some kind of transforming effect upon you um and so there's this sort of power in you know the the word that comes by by faith and is received by faith but what I'm I'm bringing that up to say that you know if holiness is not going to be restricted to the person of Christ and ultimately either to the heavens or wherever Christ is above the heavens if if it's going to be mediated as Hebrews wants I think this is, I'm sort of working toward that practical end of, of the podcast, which is how? Uh, how is uh, holiness, blamelessness, you know, uh, these kinds of things, how, how are they mediated to us? Uh, we have Christ interceding for us, uh, but in the end, do we simply give up on our being made holy? as he is holy or are participating in his holiness perhaps if not how and 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 i'm wondering about you know I, because for me the 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 thing that's always really intriguing about these kinds of passages in hebrews is is this the ease with which we could read them as as saying you know you don't need any priestly ritual right you you don't need for that matter you don't need weekly Eucharist right you don't need these things um, you just go straight to Jesus and he's interceding for us but what would it mean for because because for me when you're talking about priestly work whether it be earthly priests or Christ as priest it is work that has to do with the mediation of holiness so I want to know tell me, how does that happen?
0: Well, this is foreshadowing and taking – hopefully it doesn't take too much uh, juice away from later episodes. But for our preachers who might be preparing things or for those just listening who uh, want to know, okay, what's this going to look like? How do I not just have something in my mind but live this out? Let me let me take a few quotes from chapter 10, which is when he, when the author starts to make that more practical turn. So first of all, uh, I'll just quote one line at verse 14, chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So right there, you already have the logic, right? The perfection is in some sense this perfect tense, past with ongoing effect. But sanctification is a present tense reality. We're being sanctified, Uh right, by him and his intercession. And then to get real practical, then to verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence or boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then there's three let us verbs here, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's all holiness language there, right? Sprinkled and washed, right? Mm-hmm. A true heart, right? But that's a drawing near, and this that verb's always connected to coming to God, right? So I think the language there would be of prayer, right? What does this look like practically? It's not necessarily word I speak to another or necessarily through a ritual, though that may help. It's, it's whatever rituals help us to pray, to ask God, mm-hmm. right? Now in the present to make us holy. Mm-hmm. And then 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So there it is about the word, mm-hmm. right? Cause even the confession word there is the same word, homologion, a same word. So what's our common statement of hope? Hold on to that hope. And then the third, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it has something to do with how we interact with each other, mm-hmm. helping each other to live a life of love. But then boom, 25, not neglecting to meet together mm-hmm. as is the habit of some, mm-hmm. but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near i mean that line as is the habit of some is very revealing about the practical context in which hebrews is being written right Mm -hmm. there is some kind of sense for whatever reason whether it's temptation to rely on jewish sacrifice or if it's after the destruction of the temple the temptation to lose heart because of those sacrifices not existing anymore Mm -hmm. um or if it's a more gentile audience which some minor very minority of scholars posit that uh there's a kind of uh sort of analogy being played here in terms of pagan sacrifice world yeah you know because as if it implied kind of how much more if, if the jewish sacrifices don't apply how much more are these pagan sacrifices obviously irrelevant mm-hmm. and unhelpful to you um whatever the audience is and we don't know for sure hebrews is, has, doesn't give us evidence much of at all of what's going on or the recipient or the audience you know very little, but he wouldn't say as is the habit of some about meeting together, unless people were abandoning the community. Mm -hmm. And when I think of how holiness is mediated, my like immediate answer has to have something to do with continued adherence and participation in the people of God. That's gotta be where it is. And that's a place where Protestant Catholics agree. Mm -hmm. Even if the, the instrument of mediation is differently construed. The context of the mediation is the same, right? It's the people of God, the church, right? The gathering. Do not neglect meeting together. Don't expect to get holy out on your own, right? Yes. Uh, You're definitely screwed if you try to wing this on your own, right? So sure, it comes through prayer directly to God. Sure, it comes through holding fast to our confession. Yes. But it also comes by meeting together and encouraging each other, Mm -hmm. And holding each other accountable, and stirring each other to love and good works—that's my best guess. Mm-hmm. That that's how the author of Hebrews yeah. would picture the the mediation of Christ's holiness to us mm-hmm. is precisely through the the community gathered together. How does that strike you, Jason? Does that seem way off or right no, on? No, I
1: think it's on. And I I would say that in that t- in that tenth chapter, I mean, you know, you, and and we like you said, you don't want to steal too much thunder from the from a future podcast, but you know, in the middle of it there around verse 16 or so, you know, there's, there's the locating now it says the law, I mean, but I would say that, that here, the law for me is part of the world of holiness. Um, I'm thinking about some other maps in my head here of the old Testament, you know, this is drawing on Jeremiah and other prophetic material, but, but now it's not located in the temple per se, or in the garments or in the priestly rituals, but in the human heart. Now, there remains the question, though, of and, and and by what means or how does the law of God get written on our minds, in our hearts? And I think in a lot of kind of, if you will, lower church Protestant traditions, you know, we tend to lean really hard toward preaching that the way the spirit writes the law in our minds and hearts uh, if it's mediated through some means or practice as we meet together, what you're pointing to, right? What is it that, that, that we do as we meet together? And you mentioned prayer, which Wesley himself says is a, is a crucial means of grace that you you are not to neglect, uh, or if you neglect, it's to your own spiritual peril. But I think we've got sort of heavy emphasis on preaching, that that the Spirit works particularly through preaching. All I would sort of say here is that I think that all Protestant traditions that I'm familiar with believe in word and sacrament. Uh, and ordination for those traditions that practice it, since we're talking about whether we need earthly priests or not, all right, uh, is to the office of word and sacrament. And I would say that, that while we might not want to associate, it's not that we might not, we don't. We, we don't typically attribute holiness to physical spaces. This is the kind of thing that makes a lot, most Protestants nervous, um, you know, to, to actual physical objects, to garments. We, we tend to kind of play the superstition card very quickly there. At the same time, uh, we are strongly in favor of both word and sacrament as means of grace through which... God's holiness is mediated to us. So I don't know that this rules out the table. Uh, and I think that we we really do need both. There's so much more we could explore here. I think that, you know, for me, the um the the, the worry is always that you, you end up dispensing with all notions of sacred space and rituals as well as priests. And since some of your listeners are people preparing sermons, I mean, uh, maybe, um, you know, that this is something very practical for them to wrestle with, which is, what is the work you actually do uh, as a priest, as a preacher, as a pastor? And does it have to do with the mediation of holiness? And if so, is that primarily through preaching Or is it also through Eucharist, through sacrament? Um, I think that's worth thinking about um, in the light of these these texts.
0: Yeah, I'd be willing to go out on a limb and say there's a third aspect that would be understood as sacrament in the broader sense of means of grace. And that's intercession, which we are completely comfortable saying that a pastor ought to pray for their people. But then to ask that tough question, do I really actually recognize that I'm— joining up with Jesus and his intercession because his intercession is purifying and sanctifying his people on earth. And he's inviting me to, uh, join with him in that work. And that's a sort of tough question and raises the stakes on what it means to be one who intercedes for the flock that's been entrusted to us. And when it comes to preaching this text, I mean, there's so many ways you could do it. This could be a very doctrinal sermon, uh, It could be a very prayerful sermon, imagining uh, Jesus at the right hand and continuing to intercede and using some images, maybe that Van Dyke image or another. And if you're at a church that practices the Lord's Supper frequently, I would make a lot of connection to that. And if you don't, but you have the freedom to choose when to, this would be a really good week to do it. Um, So to say on the one hand, you know, this meal – uh, isn't doing something that's lacking in Christ's once for all work, but it isn't merely a remembering of that work. But in fact, our drawing near of uh, a, a verb used in, in verse 25, right? He's able to save at all times. Those who draw near to God through him, since he's always making intercession for them. I mean, to invite people to keep just, I, I would just camp out on that verb, draw near. I mean you might even I mean this kind of sounds like a crazy idea at the end of the podcast but if I were to like toy with a a study question and maybe a sermon is to just run a word study on draw near because it mm. is over and over in the book of Hebrews and you could kind of weave together a really beautiful picture of the Christian life as drawing near, always first to God through Christ, but then also drawing near to the community of fellow believers and drawing near to those in need around us, right? because he drew near to us, we draw near to him. You, you could, there's a whole sermon just around draw near that yep. just popped in my head right there at the end. Uh, as you tease me, Jason, that as if my brain is acting upon me, but, uh,
1: uh well, and I would say I preached this text about a year or two ago. I can't remember exactly which, uh, uh, at Asbury, uh, in the chapel. And, um, <laughs> And and there, I I sort of, I think my sermon title was Jesus is praying for you. And and that was just a a way to, I I think that's another thing you, you can do with this text is to key in, and as John was suggesting a moment ago, on the intercession aspect of it. And Christ interceding actively, present tense. So you you don't have to take a a big strong position on whether His wounds are still bleeding or not. You know, you could all of that got you know. John and I were kind of geeking out uh, on on some of that medieval theology stuff. But I say reflect on it because it
0: deepens your thinking and helps you notice some subtleties in the text. Not because you need to land somewhere or yeah. preach a position, but just this sort of background to get you reflecting. Right.
1: He does in terms of preaching is gives you an opportunity to to help people to, to to think about the fact that God and Christ is still moving toward them now, still you know interceding for you now. Uh, there's a, in other words, it puts the spotlight a little bit on the active, ongoing agency of Christ for us, whereas it's not just you know what we're doing, but but it's. What God continues to do, which is minimally, uh, if the if the actual sacrifice is not ongoing, the the praying is
0: on Christ's part. Yes. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Jason. This was a blast talking with you today. I always enjoy having you on the show and uh, we have a blast. I hope it was uh, beneficial to our listeners too. (laughs) uh, Thanks as always to Todd uh, for his editing work and for Eric and his... uh, um, some production work over the years wouldn't have gotten this started and wouldn't keep it going without you guys. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to our patron saints who support the show. If you want to become a patron saint, go to patreoncom slash fresh text, find ways you can support the show and get some extra content. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye bye.